Well, Gandhi is famously quoted having said, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. They're nothing like your Jesus. And on the flip side, I've heard recently people say, I like your Christians. They're the best people I know. They're kind, they're generous, they're loving, but I don't like your Jesus. He's kind of exclusive to claim to be the only way and the truth and the life. What's with that? So I like this community, but I don't really want your Christ. And Gandhi had a different take. I like your Christ, but I don't like your community. They're hypocritical. How can this be? How can it be that interactions with the same group of people, with the same set of beliefs, can produce two such different results? Some people, and and, and we all know them, some people who say, yeah, Jesus is intriguing to me, but I've been around Christians, I've been around the church enough to know that they're a mess, that they're judgmental, that they're hypocritical, and I don't want anything to do with that. And we probably know people who say, I really love Christians. They really are kind, they really are loving, but but Jesus, he's exclusive. Why does he have to have so many hard teachings? And, and I would love to be a part of your community, but I would need to reject your Christ, and your Christ is essential to your community, so I don't know what to do. Well, this is the paradox of Christianity. Some give Christianity a good reputation. Others, a poor reputation. Some are joyful. Some are sorrowful. Some have a strong and unshakable faith. Others have a weak and wavering faith. Most of us fall into those camps depending on the day, the week, the year. It's in this reality that James writes his letter to the first Christians, a group of people gathered 2,000 years ago on a different continent, speaking a different language in a completely different culture, but with similar cultural pressures that produced faith in them in the midst of paradox. So we're going to wrap up the book of James today as we've been studying James this spring. And our subtitle for this book is Faith at Work because James, the younger brother of Jesus, that's what he's instructing the Christians to do, to put their faith into work. That if we claim to have faith in the risen Christ, there ought to be works that follow that faith. But James knows, and in his community, this is a reality, that this faith at work is a paradox, There's these competing realities, these competing tensions, these competing fruits on the same tree. There's patience and impatience. There's love and there's judgment. There's forgiveness and there's bickering and quarreling and conflict and a lack of forgiveness. Welcome to the Christian life in its great paradox. And so today as we close down the book of James, I want to look at this last section here and consider some of the deepest paradoxes of the Christian faith. And so I'm going to ask that you stand as we read our text for today, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It's on page 1013 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those and open it up and follow along. James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Lord God, would you use this text to instruct us this morning? We pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, there are five paradoxes in this passage that I want to pull out. Five paradoxes of faith at work that if you are a follower of Jesus, you've experienced these. If you are interested in becoming a follower of Jesus, you will experience these. And we need to embrace the paradox of our faith at work. Five of them. Patience and persistence. Suffering and rejoicing. Healing and heartache. Faith and science. Wandering and returning. Now, we could stretch this into being more paradoxes or less paradoxes, but as James winds down his instruction to the early Christians, these are some of the things that are at play in their church. The first one, patience and persistence. If you were here last week, we looked at the preceding passage, so look at it with me quickly. I'll just do a quick overview. James chapter 5, verse 7, James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, the family of God, be patient. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Last week, I I looked at this passage and said that we ought to be patient. All we can do is till and plant seeds, right? We can't control our seasons. We can't control the rain. God causes it to rain. You and I have little control over the circumstances of life, but we need to patiently trust God in any season of life that we're in. That's true. We need to be patient, right? James says that over and over again throughout the entire book, but ultimately here in that passage, James 5, 7, and 8, his focus is patience. But then it's interesting, as James closes out the letter, He gives us this example of persistent faith. He gives us this example of Elijah, who a man, look at verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So what is it? Am I supposed to be patient in the seasons, knowing that I can't control the rain? that God causes things in my life, that God is sovereign, that he puts me in situations and seasons where, where, where I can do little to nothing to produce fruit. I just have to wait the season out. Or am I supposed to pray fervently like Elijah that God would cause rain or that God would withhold rain? James here is going back to a story in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 where Elijah pleaded with God, actually in the story in the Old Testament, we don't actually get a record that Elijah asked God to withhold the rain or to cause it to rain. It's this judgment on Ahab and the Israelites for for worshiping false gods. And and we get this indication through Jewish tradition and through, through James understanding what happened here and James writing that Elijah, because of his faith, because of his righteousness, though keep in mind, verse 17, he was a man with a nature just like ours, what does James mean by that? That means you know your nature. You know the, the paradox in your own life. You know the flipping back and forth. You know the seasons of faith, the seasons of fervent prayer in your own life, and you know the seasons of weakness and wateriness and a lack of faith and impartial prayer or half-hearted prayer or prayerlessness. 
Elijah is a man with a nature just like ours, so he had the propensity to waver in his prayer life just like you and I. But here James says that he presses into this and he prays fervently that it may not rain and somehow God's sovereignty and human responsibility collide. How does this work? We don't know. That's the paradox of our faith at work. That we are called to patiently endure trials and temptations and seasons of drought and we are simultaneously called to persevere in prayer, to pray fervently, to ask God to change the circumstances. He does and he doesn't. He responds by giving us what we're praying for fervently sometimes, and other times he gives us what we need, not what we want. Look at this paradox. I mean, James, be patient, be patient, be patient. The farmer has no control over the rain. And yet Elijah, a man with a nature just like ours, he persisted in prayer. I love this story that Jesus gives, this parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18. He gives a parable about a persistent widow who comes to this judge and comes to this judge and pleads with this judge and pleads with this judge. And in this parable, Jesus says the judge cares nothing about the widow, and yet he answered her request because he was sick of being annoyed by her. And the point of this parable, Jesus is saying that the, the judge is the antithesis of God. The judge cares nothing for this widow, and yet he gives her what she asked for because of her persistence. While on the flip side, if God is your loving father who cares about you, how much more readily will he answer your prayers because he cares for you? And so, church family, as you live your life in Christ, as your faith is worked out day in and day out, there is a paradox between patience and persistence. You're called to both. Be patient in the trial, be patient in the season, and persist in prayer, asking God for his will to be done. And yes, you can even ask him for what you think his will ought to be. And then trusting, as Jesus said, your will be done, not mine. Second paradox here in this text is suffering and rejoicing. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And isn't this true of the Christian life, even the Christian gathering? This morning, some of you, like this, maybe the songs were too upbeat for you, and you're like, my soul feels down and downcast and downtrodden, and I need to lament, I, I, I need to mourn. I've just gotten bad news about a health diagnosis. I've just gotten bad news about a family member, and I feel like God is distant. I'm dealing with some chronic illness and I feel like God is distant and I'm suffering and I want a prayerful, reflective gathering. Some of you come in and you're cheerful and you're joyful and God is showing you his goodness by good things at the moment. And so you come in and the music this morning was a little more cheerful and you feel good. You sing this, this word for praise in verse 13. It actually means to pluck an instrument. Thank you, worship team, for plucking your instruments and for singing the good news of the gospel. We sang one of the lyrics, we will sing of your goodness and mercy all of our days. That's a Christian call. James is calling the early church, the first church, to sing. When we're cheerful, when we're joyful, we sing, we proclaim, we shout, we pluck strings. As the psalm says, we hit cymbals. Drums are biblical. Amen? Psalm 150, you clang the cymbals. 
Amen. You pluck the strings, you play the guitar, or the harp, probably, in their context. Amen? We sing. And so this gathering is filled with people who are singing and shouting and proclaiming God's goodness, and also people who are in the midst of suffering and need to be prayed over. And, and you've experienced both in your lives, in your life, seasons of suffering and seasons of rejoicing. And so James calls us, those of you who are suffering, pray. This word for prayer, it actually means to make an exchange. It means to bring your suffering, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your struggles to God and exchange them for his truth. That's what prayer is. God, here's all of me. Here's my questions, here's my doubts, here's my pain, here's my frustration, here's my anger. That's why I love the Psalms. Every range of human emotion is captured in the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, will you ever show me compassion? Great is the Lord and worthy of our praise. What a bipolar life the Christian life is. What a paradox for our faith to be worked out. And James here is inviting us into this paradox as our faith is worked out. And so if you're suffering, come to God in prayer, making an exchange of your doubts, of your fears, of your failures, of your hang-ups for his truth. If you are cheerful, if you are joyful, come to God with singing, proclaiming his worth, proclaiming his due. And both of these go together. Like Romans says, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Sing with those who sing. The third paradox we see here is healing and heartache. Okay, so at verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Then he gives us this little caveat about cheerfulness, right? Because I I think he wants the church family, I think he wants the people of God to feel the tension. We don't like to feel tension. Right? I mean, that's why there's so many churches divided over theology, over practice, over music style, over cultural whatever, because we don't like to live in the tension. Most of us want to find a church that sings the way that we like to sing. Most of us want to find a church that, that teaches the doctrines that we think by the Bible most closely teaches, and it's all just a personal interpretation, right? And so we silo ourselves into these areas into these churches into these groups into these friend groups where there's little tension but James here is holding this tension this paradox of your faith at work there's suffering and there's joy and then he's digging further into this suffering piece he says is anyone among you sick verse 14 here's the paradox of healing and heartache let him call for the elders of the church the elders of the church are just appointed Male leaders in the church who God has given authority to proclaim the gospel and to carry the spiritual burdens of the church before the Lord. We'll do an entire sermon on that someday because that's countercultural. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What does this passage mean? 
I was to do a show of hands, and it won't because it's a little bit personal, but how many of you have been abused by this passage? Oh, there's some sickness, there's some disease, there's something broken and wrong in your life. Well, call for the elders, they'll anoint you with oil, and and you haven't been healed yet, why not? It's because you don't have enough faith, it's because the person that you asked to pray for you doesn't have enough faith. How come this won't change? Uh, We don't, why? This passage says, if anyone is sick, call to the elders, they will anoint him with oil, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Well, notice that it actually doesn't say that the Lord will heal your diseases or sickness. It says that the Lord will raise you up, that, that it will save the one who is sick. Is James saying that it's more about spiritual salvation than physical healing? He says, commit your sin, um, not commit your sins to one another, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another you, that you may be healed. What, what's he getting at here with the healing? Is this physical healing? Is it spiritual healing? Is it relational healing? Yes. All of it. This is the paradox of our faith at work. Sometimes God doesn't physically heal our loved ones, though we pray and though we pray and though we pray and though we follow the biblical pattern of calling the elders to anoint with oil. And why not? Some of us just live with heartache, some of you have lost loved ones. And you question, is it because I didn't pray hard enough? Is it because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working? As James says in verse 16, I guess my pastors, my elders aren't righteous enough. I guess I'm not righteous enough. I guess I didn't pray hard enough. I guess I didn't have enough faith. I guess the oil that they used was a little bit fake. Right? Like maybe they didn't have the olive oil that came from Jerusalem. So it didn't have that healing power in it. What? What, what's going on here? What's happening here? The reality is, church family, is that we don't know the will of God, why he chooses to heal some and not heal others in a physical manner. There's some mystery, there's some paradox as our faith is worked out. Here, this, this text seems to be focused on physical healing, But let me remind you that in the scriptures, in the first century, in the early church, John the Baptist was put in prison. And he was killed in prison. Though the early disciples prayed for his release. In contrast, the apostle Paul was put in prison. And the early Christians prayed for his release. And God tore the prison walls down with an earthquake and he walked out. Well, after he stayed. Acts 16, it's a beautiful story. But do you see the paradox there? Why did John the Baptist get imprisoned and, cru- and killed in prison, even though the disciples were praying in faith that he would be released? And why did Paul get put in prison and get released from prison when they were praying in faith? There's this extreme paradox and mystery. Or Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned in a city riot for trusting Jesus, for proclaiming Jesus. They drag him into the city square, and this angry mob stones him to death. They throw rocks at him in a public setting until he dies. I love his response at the end of of, uh, Acts chapter 7. He says, may you hold this not against them, Lord. Can you imagine? Just, just let's, let's look at it real quick. This is off the cuff. But this is just so 
countercultural. Flip over to Acts chapter 7, verse 60, right at the end of the chapter. Stephen is in this city square. He's being killed by people chucking boulders and rocks at him. Verse 60 says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How many of us, if we were being wrongly accused and attacked and murdered in the streets, would we, would we say, God, like, he doesn't retaliate. Because Jesus had previously taught them not to retaliate. He says, God, hold this not against them. That's a side note. Let's come back to healing and heartache. There's some heartache there. Stephen died. His family, his friends, his kids, if he had them, had to live the rest of their earthly existence without this man that they knew and loved. Heartache. God, why would you allow this to happen? Meanwhile, Paul had similar experiences where he was dragged into public, into the city square in the midst of a riot, and people wanted to kill him, and he was released. He was healed. He was delivered out of that situation. This is the paradox of the Christian faith. You're going to experience this in your walk with Jesus. Some groups of people are going to emphasize the physical healing to the point where you question your faith and you wonder and you feel abused or beat up. Some people are going to, going to not give any consideration to the physical healing and the possibility of that so much so that if it happens, you're going to think it's a coincidence or they're not going to believe that God can still do miracles. There's a paradox here. Welcome to the tension of the Christian life. Hold them together. That God miraculously heals and he also leads us through heartache. And why? We don't know, but we trust and surrender. This is what it means for our faith to be put into action, for our faith to be worked out. Fourth, this is kind of tied to this one, but faith in science. Faith in science. They can actually go together. They actually do go together in the Christian church. Now, science, a lot of science is just faith, right? It's hypotheses that are still being tested. It's this is what we think happened in the past and we've tested it, or here's what we think will happen if we test this. And there's a lot of evolution to science, correct? Let's just keep that in mind, that science involves some faith. There is some trusted science, but science involves, a lot of science involves some faith and some continual evolution, but this passage has this unique... Okay, so let's put these together. Faith and science. Verse 14, James says to call for the elders of the church and let them anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, some faithful Bible scholars and interpreters interpret this oil as medicine. All you essential oil people, you've finally been validated. He's calling for the elders who have the, the, the whole backpack full of essential oils to put the lavender, to put the... That's the only one that I know of. There's a bunch of others. To use the essential oils to actually help in this sickness, help in this ailment. Throughout, throughout history, and especially in this culture, in this moment in history, oil was used as a medicine. Various different types of oils applied to various types of sickness and various, various ailments to help bring about healing. And so some people will interpret this and say, this is actually a scientific text. 
It's saying the elders, they, they have access because they're leaders in the community. They have access to get the oils that are needed. And so go to them and ask them to use these oils to anoint you to, to help apply medicine for your healing. I think that's a valid interpretation. Other people interpret this passage as a spiritually significant, a spiritual, spiritually symbolic anointing with oil. And throughout the Old Testament, oil is used as this imagery for the power of God. Oil had this prominent place in the tabernacle as Israel wandered through the wilderness. Oil, over and over again in the scriptures, has this deep spiritual significant meaning. Like, think about Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And so some people think, well, it doesn't matter about the oil. It's just a symbolic way to trust God's power to heal. Valid interpretation. So which is it? I don't know. Some pastors, some churches, some people are going to press really hard into one or the other. I want to tell you that there's faithful Bible interpreters on both sides who interpret it differently. And I think we need to hold these in tension. That there is faith God, I don't know why you chose to heal. I don't know if it was because we laid our hands on with oil. I don't know if it's because we prayed with faith or if it's because the medicine did its work. Probably both and, right? Welcome to the Christian life. It's this paradox. And so hold these things in tension. And I think there's a specific tie here to confession and healing. So yes, faith and science, I think there's this unique thing going on in this church, and we don't know how specific this situation is to just one person in the church in Jerusalem, that there's a sick person who this is the, this is the antidote, this is what they're called to do, or if this is just a general practice for all Christians, all times, all places, we don't know. It's here and we have to wrestle with it. That's why I think there's some paradox, some tension. But listen to this uniqueness, verse 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. So some people will say all of your ailments, all of your sickness, all of your diseases is a result of your sin, based off of this passage. Unconfessed sin. Therefore, confess your sin, and you will be healed. Therefore, as it says in verse 16, confess your sin, one to another, that you may be healed. And so what is going on here? Do people pass away from cancer because of unconfessed sin? Do people perpetually struggle with, with arthritis? With whatever physical ailment you have because of unconfessed sin? Welcome to the paradox of faith at work. Yes and no. Maybe, maybe not. Is the Bible clear enough for you? Like people who just want answers, tell me how it is. Explain it to me. Give me the detail. Good luck. The life of faith is this invitation to apprentice Jesus and to experience the whole range of human emotions and questions and to work it out in community with others. And so I don't know. There is indication here that there is sickness that results from unconfessed sin. I don't believe all sickness results from unconfessed sin. There's places we could go to, to look at that, but I just want to invite you into the tension here. And what I w do want to do quickly is just say that there is some unique connection between faith and science, between confession and healing and confession and forgiveness. Consider David. 
David, who wrote in Psalm 32. And so David, he, he slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife. He killed Uriah, that man's husband, who was one of his best soldiers, and then he lied about it. And in the midst of his lying, he was, he was feeling that presence of the Lord heavy upon him. Let's, let's consider this in Psalm 32. David writes about this experience of unconfessed sin in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is not deceit. For when I kept silent, this is when David had unconfessed sin. He hadn't confessed his sin of adultery and murder. And then Nathan, his friend, came to him and he confronted him and he said, You are that man. You are the man who sinned. And so David's experience of unconfessed sin and then experiencing healing from it. Listen to this. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see that? When David had unconfessed sin, it actually affected his mind, his body, his spirit, his soul. He was in a depression. He was apathetic. He was in a funk. He felt the heavy hand of the Lord's discipline upon him. He didn't feel well because there was unconfessed sin. And so I think part of what James is getting at here is that as you confess your sin, as you bring your sin into light, into the light, you experience the forgiveness, the healing, the salvation of the Lord, new and afresh. The burden is lifted off your shoulders. And it's interesting, this is, this is faith, right? This is the spiritual teaching of God's word. And it's interesting that faith and science, faith and medicine, aren't as often at odds as we think they are. Listen to what this neuroscientist, David Eagleman, said in an interview a few years back. So confession brings healing to the soul, but confession can also bring healing to the body. Listen to what David Eagleman says, a neuroscientist. He says, you have competing populations in the brain, one part that wants to tell something and another part that doesn't. There is a real physiological battle going on in the brain. So keeping... Keeping certain behaviors secret, especially behaviors that are seen or understood to be wrong, means continual struggle with yourself. The internal dissonance and lack of sense of personal integrity is draining. The struggle involved in keeping a secret is stressful. This means that your brain will register that there are increased levels of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle. Your brain doesn't enjoy this stress. Brains that are marinated in stress hormones due to keeping secrets can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. A neuroscientist who's saying in studying the brain, unconfessed sin can manifest itself in physical ailment, in physical unhealth. Please hear me. That doesn't mean that all of your lost loved ones, that all of your sicknesses are the result of unconfessed sin. What it's to do is to show us that as faith works its way out, there is this combination and space for science and faith, that the two aren't separated, that you can't necessarily divorce the two, that as James writes to confess our sins to one another, 
And as he calls the elders to anoint the sick person and to pray with, with, with fervent prayer, that there's some paradox there. There's some mystery there. And so continue pressing forward, trusting God. And then the fifth paradox here is in the last two verses. It's wandering and returning. It's the combo of wandering and returning. Look at how James closes down his book. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We all have seasons of wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm just saying that this morning. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy, thy courts above. James here is getting at in the community of faith. There are seasons of wandering and returning, and there are people who will wander, and we ought to go and seek their spiritual return. Some of you may have heard the word deconstruction recently. Like there's this whole movement of Christians deconstructing their faith. And for some people, that word is really alarming. For other people, that word can be empowering because there's a lot of things that we ought to deconstruct, right? I mean, Jesus came onto the scene and he was deconstructing the religious culture and the religious systems and all of the extra-biblical things that the religious world had set up. He deconstructed that. And so every generation, each church, each new generation of people of faith deconstruct some things that their parents and their grandparents did. Right? Like some of you in your 70s and 80s, the culture was different back then, so you weren't so willing to deconstruct what the people older than you did in the church, but certainly you wrestled with it, right? You were like, do we really have to do this? Do I really have to wear a dress down to my ankles to be a good Christian? And so each generation will deconstruct some of the extra biblical religious cultures that the previous generation set up. James isn't talking about that. And so when you hear somebody talk about deconstructing their faith or wandering from some Christian religious tradition, you got to do the hard work to figure out, are they, are they deconstructing extra biblical things or are they doing what James is saying here, wandering from the truth, wandering from the gospel? And then in humility, calling wanders back to the truth, the essence of the gospel. Knowing that each one of us has had seasons of wandering, seasons of questioning, seasons of doubting. And so James acknowledges that in the paradox of your faith being worked out, there will be seasons where you're filled with questions, filled with doubts. You're questioning some of the, some of the core tenets of the faith. You're also questioning a lot of the religious culture of the church. Be gracious with that. And coming out of this section where the elders of the church are called to pray, the leaders of the church are called to, to, to seek out the wanderers to help them reconstruct their faith on the gospel. Not reconstruct religious churchy culture. Reconstruct the essence of who Jesus is. See, James says, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth, wanders from the truth, wanders from the truth, not from the secondary preferences of the religious day and age. And so he says, whoever brings them back, this person, they will, they will be saved. That's, 
That's the essence. That's the call of Christianity. Jesus, in the Great Commission, he says, I I empower you to go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey me, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Labor, work together to seek the wanders, to chase the strain sheep. And don't get judgmental and harsh towards the strange sheep. But remember the gospel. As we close down this morning, flip over to Isaiah 53. As James closes out his letter saying that there's people who will wander from the truth and our job is to go and rescue them. Keep in mind the paradox of wandering and returning and listen to what the prophet Isaiah had to say about us and Jesus. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he would, was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, of Yahweh, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Remember that verse in James about the prayer of a righteous person? Where is our righteousness? Is it in our veracity, in our ability, in our confidence, in our prayer? No, you don't trust in your faith. You trust in Jesus. And this is what he's saying here. Your righteousness is not found in your religiosity. Your righteousness is not found in anointing somebody with oil and praying with enough faith. Your righteousness is purchased for you and found for you and imputed to you by Jesus. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, return to Jesus. Return to Jesus. Return to Jesus as we live out our faith in this paradox. There will be many things that, that... push you and turn you and twist you and cause doubts and questions and pain and heartache. Hold these things in tension. Know that as your faith is worked out in real life, there are paradoxes. And as you're tempted to wander from the truth, remember this, that we all have gone astray, but Jesus the good shepherd has come to call back the strange sheep into his fold. He has shed his blood in your place on your behalf that you might be saved. Amen? So we're going to just sing about that truth now and you're welcome to take communion whenever you feel led and ready. There's a communion packet 
in the pew in front of you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if he is your good shepherd and you, whether you're currently strain or whether you're in line with him, if you would come to him as your good shepherd and say, Jesus, I trust you, I need you, I want to follow you, these elements are here to remind you of your salvation, that your faith is being worked out in the paradox. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you lived a perfect, sinless life, that though we have all gone astray and have all gone our own way, that you willingly took our transgression upon yourself, our sin, our missing the mark upon yourself, and you have given us your righteousness, your new life. So we sing and we pray and we gather around the good news that we have new life in you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.